Well, here we are in the Hebrew month of Cheshvan. We've made it through Tabernacles. Tabernacles was in the seventh month. Seven is completion and perfection. But now we're in the eighth month. And eight is the new beginning. So tell your neighbor, I'm ready for a new beginning. And I think we're going to see some things. If you're looking for a new beginning in your life, I think we're going to see some things this morning as we look at this month on how to come out of the old and into the new. So the message this morning is the month of Cheshvan, the judgment of the Nephilim, and grace for a new beginning. So, welcome to our first fruit celebration for the Hebrew month of Cheshvan. You know, to the Jews, every month is a new prophetic season. At the start of every month, we want to ask, what is God saying about this month? And Cheshvan is a very significant month. As I said, it's the eighth month of the Hebrew year. The number eight signifies revelation and a new beginning. So as we come into this month, ask God for revelation for a new beginning this month. Now, Cheshvan is the month associated with the tribe of Manasseh, which was one of the most blessed of all the tribes. Cheshvan is the only month with no Jewish holidays. The Jews believe God is saving this month for the Messiah. That when Messiah comes and God's temple is rebuilt, they believe it will be dedicated in Cheshvan. So this is the month for the Messiah. That means this month, pray for the Jews to come to know their Messiah. But the most important thing to know about the month of Cheshvan is this. Cheshvan can be a month of judgment, but Cheshvan can also be a month of grace and a new beginning. Now, why do I say that? Well, one of the most significant events in human history took place in the month of Cheshvan. It's called the Great Flood. It was an act of God's judgment. And the flood began in Cheshvan, so Cheshvan was a month of judgment. But the flood ended the following year in Cheshvan. And in Cheshvan, Noah brought his sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord swore never again to destroy the earth with a flood. And in Cheshvan, God revealed the sign of his covenant, the rainbow. So Cheshvan is also a month of grace. Now, since this is the month of the flood, we want to understand some things about it. Now, we all know the story of the flood. We teach our kids about Noah and the ark in Sunday school. But let me tell you, there's a lot more to the flood than cute little animals peeking out of a big boat. The flood was a catastrophe. It was the most destructive event in human history. You know, for years, scientists ridiculed Christians for believing in in the flood But many scientists now believe that a flood actually happened. One argument in favor of a flood came from the anthropologists. And what they've discovered was the biblical account of the flood is not the only flood story. 
they found that hundreds of cultures all over the world have flood myths. And these groups, for the most part, had no contact with each other, but they have very similar stories. Their oldest legends all record a terrible flood that destroyed most of the human race. And so they say something must have happened to produce all of those stories. There must have been a worldwide flood storm. What could have caused that kind of disaster? Some scientists now believe a massive comet struck the Earth around 3000 BC. The impact of that would have been unimaginable. Superheated steam driven into the atmosphere would have birthed super hurricanes worldwide. A mega tsunami over 600 foot tall would have inundated the world's coastlands. And the skies would have been darkened with ash for months. Most of the world's population would have perished, making it what one scientist called the most lethal event in history. So that was one scientist's attempt to describe how a worldwide flood storm might have taken place. But far more important than how the flood happened is why it happened. See, the flood was a manifestation of God's judgment. It was the greatest catastrophe in human history. Everybody that wasn't on the ark was destroyed. What could have caused God to release that level of judgment in the earth? And to answer that, we want to take a closer look at the biblical description of the flood. The account of the flood begins in Genesis chapter 6, and it begins with a very interesting passage. In Genesis 6, it says, when the human race increased in number, the sons of God saw that human women were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and when the sons of God came in to the human women and had children by them, they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw how wicked the human race had become. And that every inclination of the, of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe the human race from the face of the earth for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man and he walked faithfully with God. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence and I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. So the flood story begins with an invasion of the earth by beings called the sons of men. Now, I just want to warn you, this, for some of you, is going to be some new information. It's going to sound a little strange, but we'll talk about that. It says, the sons of God saw that human women were beautiful, and they married any they chose, and the offspring of the union between the sons of God and the human females were called Nephilim, and the result was most of the human race became so demonized that God had to destroy it. 
Now, to understand Genesis 6 and to see why God judged the earth, there are two questions we need to answer. Number one, who were those sons of God? Number two, who were the Nephilim? But before we try to answer those questions, we need to understand some things about angels and demons because there's a lot of flaky ideas about angels and demons floating around in the world. But we live in a time when warfare is increasing. The forces of darkness are stepping up their activity. But the armies of light are also becoming more and more evident. And it's important for us to understand what angels and demons are. So what is an angel? The Bible dictionary describes, uh, defines it this way. An angel is an order of supernatural beings whose business it is to act as God's messengers to men and as agents to carry out his will in the earth. The word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. And angels are very common all the way through the Bible. They appeared to Abraham and Jacob and Joshua. An angel found water for Hagar in the wilderness. Angels talked to Moses and guided Israel. They warned Balaam and they fed Elijah. They foretold Jesus coming and they announced his birth. They rolled away the stone and delivered the apostles from prison. They were seen all the way through the book of Acts and wherever we see them, their job is to execute God's will in heaven and on earth. Now, angels are called spirit beings. That means they are native to a spirit realm that the Bible calls the second heaven. But that does not mean they don't have bodies. Angels are not wispy, ethereal creatures. That's one of the most common misconceptions about angels. Because the Bible shows that angels have tangible bodies. And when they leave the second heaven and enter our realm, they're as real, as solid as we are. Angels eat and drink. You know, some angels visited Abraham. You know what he did? He cooked dinner for them. And they sat down and ate together. Angels use weapons and tools. They play musical instruments. They cook food in 2 Samuel 19, Elijah was exhausted, so an angel came and cooked a meal for him. Angels feel solid to the touch. They're physically attractive. You know, the men of Sodom wanted to have sexual relationships with them. And angels are so real and so lifelike and human-like, they're often mistaken for human beings. In Hebrews 13, 2, it says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels without knowing it. God says there are angels among us. How well do you know that person sitting next to you? <laughs> we would just welcome any angels that are here today. Now, one question that the theologians like to ask is, are there female angels? Because some theologians teach that angels are only male. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> you know, and Zach, it just means they haven't read their Bibles. 
Zechariah 5.9, Zechariah writes, Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. We wonder, who were those winged women? Well, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says these winged women were executing judge God's purposes in the earth. That's the very definition of an angel. So yes, there are female angels. And angels are called by many names. They're called messengers, watchers, holy ones, morning stars, and Hebrew, benai Elohim, which is usually translated sons of God. And if you understand these things about angels, that means you already know a whole lot about demons. Because demons are just fallen angels. Demons once were angels. They have the strength and the ability of angels. But they followed Satan in his rebellion against God and were cast down. And Satan has organized the demons in ranks, forming a kingdom of darkness. And they're sent out by Satan to fulfill his purposes and to hinder the work of God in the earth. So angels are our allies. Demons are our enemies. And Paul says we are locked in hand-to-hand combat with demonic forces. Now, if we understand what angels and demons are like, we are ready to look at Genesis chapter 6. Because to understand Genesis 6 and see why God sent judgment on the earth, we need to answer two questions. Who were the sons of God? Who were the Nephilim? First of all, who were those sons of God? There are two primary interpretations. Some Some teach that the sons of God are the male descendants of Seth and that the human women are the female descendants of Cain. And according to this view, what happened in Genesis 6 was that men from the godly line of Seth married the ungodly daughters of Cain, and as a result, humanity became so corrupt, God was forced to destroy the human race. Now, I have a lot of problems with that interpretation, but the main one is this. When the phrase, sons of God, is used other places in the Old Testament, it never refers to human beings. So there's a second interpretation. And the second interpretation is the sons of God are fallen angels. And these fallen angels in rebellion against God were attracted to the women of earth, had sex with them, and produced a hybrid race known as the Nephilim. Now that sounds really strange. Let me tell you the reason why I believe the sons of God were angels. First of all, the phrase sons of God is used several places in the Old Testament, and it always refers to supernatural beings. Job 38, 7 says, the sons of God shouted for joy as they watched God create the earth. Job 1, 6 and Job 2, 1 says, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord in heaven. And among those sons of God came Satan himself. And so sons of God is constantly, cons- consistently used in the Old Testament for angelic beings 
And it can even include fallen angels. Now this is not some far out fringe idea. The ancient Jewish rabbis and the Jewish historian Josephus all identified the sons of God here as angelic beings. The early Christian writers in the first five centuries all taught the sons of God were fallen angels. And the New Testament also seems to teach this. In Jude 6 to 7 and 2 Peter 2 4, describe a time when a group of angels left their own realm and committed some kind of sexual sin for which they received severe judgment. It says, angels who did not keep their own domain, he is kept in bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. For they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange or different flesh. And so I believe the sons of God were fallen angels. But who were the Nephilim? Well, according to Genesis 6, they are the offspring of the union of sons of God and human women. The word Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word nephal, which means to fall. The Nephilim are the fallen ones. And Genesis 6 tells us several things about the Nephilim. It says the Nephilim were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now, men of renown means famous. It's saying, you've heard stories about these mighty men before. We wonder, are there other stories of mighty men who were the offspring of demons and humans? And the answer is yes. There are stories of these mighty men in the myths of Greece, Rome, China, Egypt, India, many other places. The Greek called the Nephilim demigods. You know, in Greek mythology, Zeus had sex with a mortal woman and produced Perseus, who was a great hero of Greek mythology. Now, the New Testament says pagan gods like Zeus are actually demons. So Perseus was the offspring of a demon and a human, and that makes him a Nephilim. And the ancient legends are full, full of stories of the Nephilim. Zeus had sex with another human woman and produced the mighty Hercules. Poseidon raised, raped the daughter of the king of Egypt, and she bore the pow powerful Agenor. Poseidon had sex with another woman and produced the hero Bellerophon. And so when Moses wrote Genesis 6, he knew that the people had already heard many legends about the Nephilim. Now Genesis 6 also tells us that this demonic invasion was not the only one that happened. It says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, that's before the flood, and also afterward. That means there were similar demonic invasion that took place after the flood. Numbers 13.33 tells us that when Israel entered the promised land, they found Nephilim living there. Does that mean some of the Nephilim had survived the flood? No. It means that at some point after the flood, demons again interbred with human women, and the result was more Nephilim. Now, there were several families of Nephilim among the Canaanites. They were the Anakim, who descended from Anak, 
the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Rephaim. We know the names of some of these Nephilim. The giant Goliath was of the Nephilim, probably related to the line of Anak. He was said to be nine feet tall. Another one was Og, the Amorite king of Bashan. When Israel was coming out of their 40 years in the wilderness, the root brought them to the borders of Bashan. Deuteronomy 3.11 describes Og this way. It says, King Og of Bashan was the last of the Rephaim. That's one of the families of Nephilim. He had a bed made of iron that was over 13 feet long and six feet wide. I'll tell you, that was a real king-size bed. <laughs> now, Bashan was an interesting place. Today, we call it the Golan Heights. It's known for its prized cattle. It's also known for its vineyards. Even today, the best wines in Israel come from the Golan Heights. Now, if you go to Bashan today, you can actually see the remains of Og's kingdom. And it's not like any ruins you have ever seen. On the Golan Heights in biblical Bashan, there are many unusual structures. There are hundreds of dolmens, prehistoric megalithic tombs of enormous size. Wonder who built that? Even more impressive is the site called Gilgal Rephaim. It's called the Stonehenge of the Middle East. The Ogal Rephaim is located in the middle of a plateau, plateau covered with hundreds of those giant uh, dolmen tombs. It's made up of 42,000 large basalt rocks arranged in concentric circles. The outermost wall is 520 feet in diameter and eight feet high. It's almost two football fields across. It has a 15-foot-tall mound of stones in the center. Now, the Jews believe that Gilgal Rephaim was built by the giants known as the Rephaim. It was a family of Nephilim. And Og was the last of their kings. Now, the second demonic incursion was limited to the region of Canaan. And so instead of destroying the whole earth again, God ordered Israel to completely destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. Joshua said, the Lord our God delivered Og, the king of Bashan, with all of his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. Now, why was that necessary? Well, as in Noah's day, inbreeding with demons caused humanity to be thoroughly demonized. Genesis 6 says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We see the same thing in Canaan. The Canaanites were known throughout the region as one of the most wicked, perverted, and violent societies in history. And see, demons cannot be redeemed. A human race that is inbred with demons could not receive salvation. And I believe that was Satan's goal with the Nephilim. He wanted to so pollute the human race that no one could ever find salvation. And so judgment had to fall. Wherever the Nephilim arose, they had to be utterly destroyed. But I believe the account of the Nephilim may still have one more chapter. 
You know, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be at the coming of the Son of Man. It was the wickedness of humanity and the union of fallen angels with humans that moved God to judge the world. And I believe our world is ripe for a repetition. The world is hungry for the supernatural. And our media has been pouring out a steady stream of movies and books that glorify evil. But in recent years, it's taken a new step. One of the most popular genres in young adult fiction today is called paranormal romance. And many of these books are about women having romantic encounters with demons. I came across a list of young adult fiction, and I was shocked to see book after book with titles like Demons are a Girl's Best Friend. Demons do it better. Sweet evil, demon kissed, the darkest pleasure, drawn into darkness. I mean, that sort of gives you chills just reading that. But these books are incredibly popular. Thousands of teenage girls are reading book after book, presenting sex with demons as a wonderful romantic thing. Lord help us. See, I believe Satan has prepared the world for a third demonic invasion. And it may have already begun. In 2015, I saw something in the news that shocked me. ISIS had released a video of their fighters beheading some prisoners. But the news media saw the pictures and they spotted something in the video that made them doubt its authenticity. The report said this, ISIS army of seven-footers? Experts say video of cop beheadings is manipulated. They're, the media said these videos must be faked because they appear to show ISIS fighters that are seven feet tall. And I thought, well, it could be a fake video or it could be Nephilim are already here. And I think we need to understand how demons operate. You know, in my book, Set Yourself Free, I describe three levels of demonization. First of all, demons attack. That means they stand at a distance and shoot fiery arrows of affliction. Now, when that happens, you got to have your armor on. But if you're wearing your spiritual armor, it does not harm you. But then demons can also attach they can attach to you and oppress you over a long period of time. It's like the woman who was crippled by a demon for 18 years in Luke 13. And Jesus commanded the demon off and she was healed. But demons can also infest. They can burrow down into your personality and affect your whole identity. That was like the gathering demoniac. But sometimes... When the level of occult and lawlessness in a society has opened the way, there can be a fourth level of demonization. Demons can physically invade. And when they do it, it unleashes such a level of evil in the society that the wrath of God is poured out. And I believe there's a progression in how that works. 
Where godliness prevails in a society, demons attack. If you're godly, if you're walking with God, demons will attack you. That's why it says, put your armor on. They'll try to torment you and bring momentary affliction. But if demons find they are unopposed, they'll go a step further. They'll attach themselves to you. And they'll oppress you over a long period of time. But if there's still no one to stand against them, demons will begin to infest. They'll enter their victims and influence their personalities. And when demonization becomes widespread, demons invade, unleashing overwhelming evil in the society. Now let me tell you something. Jesus never met a demon that he liked. Wherever he went, he cast out demons and set Satan's captives free. And see, that's our call as well. Tell your neighbor, that's what you're called to do. Genesis 6 gives us a warning. Do not take evil lightly. God is calling you to be a light in the darkness, to do battle in the heavens through prayer and intercession. He's calling you to put on our armor, to take up our weapons, to destroy the works of darkness and set the devil's captives free. Somebody's got to do it. Tell your neighbor, might as well be me. And so in Noah's day, the human race became thoroughly demonized. Humanity had given itself to the occult in every form of rebellion against God. Genesis 6 says every, uh, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And let me say this again. Demons cannot be redeemed. A human race that's interbred with demons could not receive salvation. And so judgment had to fall. Judgment fell in the month of Cheshvan. So Cheshvan was a month of judgment. And Cheshvan, God wants us to know judgment is real. God does not enjoy judgment. He's always patient, giving people time to repent. During the years the ark was being prepared, Noah preached to his generation and urged them to repent. But just because God is patient, it's a mistake to think that judgment will never come. See, some people think they can just sin all they want and never suffer consequences. God wants you to know there comes a time for judgment. And judgment came in Cheshvan. But as judgment was about to fall, we're told Noah found grace in God's eyes. And so God told Noah, to build an ark. You know, our theme at the head of the year conference a few weeks ago was building the house for the future. That's what the ark was. God was saying, this is the structure you need to build if you want to succeed in the season ahead. That's what God is saying to us. Build the house for the future. The ark was Noah's house for the future. And in the ark, God included everything Noah needed to secure his future. And when it was built, it began to rain. And because he followed God's prophetic word, Noah and his family were saved. See, Cheshvan was a month of judgment, but Cheshvan is also a month of grace. 
Because Noah walked with God, he received grace. You know, if you turn from sin and seek God, there's always grace. Tell your neighbor, there's always grace. So even when the world is under judgment, God gives grace. And grace came in Cheshvan. The storm of God's judgment was raging across the earth. The future of the human race looked like it would be cut off. But God's grace opened the door to a whole new future for Noah. God gave the human race a new beginning. Cheshvan is not only a month of judgment and of grace, it's the month of a new beginning. It's the eighth month. Eighth is the number of a new beginning. The flood not only began in Cheshvan, the flood ended in Cheshvan. In Cheshvan, Noah and his family left the ark. And God made a covenant to never again destroy the earth with a flood. And he gave Noah a sign of his covenant, the rainbow. So the month of Cheshvan is a month to remember the reality of judgment but it's also a month to turn to God and receive grace. We saw at head of the year that this is a year of covenant. God has made covenant promises to you just like he made them to Noah. God's, one of the promises he's made to you is this, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11. So in Sheshvan, God wants you to know, even when you see judgment at work in the world, God has grace for those who turn to him. So turn to him this month. Find time today. Get alone with God. If there are any sins you need to confess, go ahead and do it. But set your heart to seek him. Receive grace for your new beginning this month. Now, there's one more thing we want to see about the month of Cheshvan. Cheshvan is also the month associated with the tribe of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph in Egypt. And when Joseph's father, Jacob, came down to Egypt, he adopted Manasseh and his brother Ephraim as his own, and he pronounced great blessings over them. And God answered Jacob's prayer by showering great blessing on Manasseh and his brother Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh were so greatly blessed that their blessing became a standard by which blessings are measured. And even today, when Jewish parents bless their children on Shabbat, they'll often pray that God would bless their daughters like Ruth and like Esther and their sons like Ephraim and Manasseh. So in a month of Manasseh, expect God's blessing. Tell your neighbor, expect blessing this month. <laughs> you know, when Israel made it to the promised land, the best of the land was given to Manasseh. Manasseh got the largest section of land east of the Jordan and the second largest section west of the Jordan. And the territory of Manasseh was the richest and most productive part of the promised land. Manasseh was blessed above all the other tribes. The tribe of Manasseh birthed mighty warriors like Gideon and Jephthah. Manasseh was able to stand against its enemies and gain great victories. But for all their blessings, Manasseh was not loyal to God. 
And when the ten northern tribes rebelled against Judah, Manasseh joined with them. King Jeroboam set up two golden calves and told the people to worship them instead of going down to the temple in Jerusalem. And so Manasseh turned from the true God and worshiped the golden calves. Now God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. Elijah and Elisha worked great signs and wonders. Jonah, Amos, and Hosea all gave warnings. And while there were brief periods of partial repentance, Manasseh repeatedly turned away from God. And eventually, because of their continuing idolatry, God's judgment fell. God let them be conquered by the Assyrians. Manasseh's people were carried off as captives. And Manasseh became a lost tribe of Israel. And for centuries, everybody assumed that Manasseh had been wiped from existence, totally destroyed. Manasseh was a symbol of the terrible judgment of God. But Manasseh also demonstrates the grace of God. Manasseh had sinned, and Manasseh was judged, but God had not forgotten his covenant with Manasseh. Here's an article from the Israel National News dated 6-24-2011. And it's about a remote tribal group in northern India that call themselves the Benai Manash, or the sons of Manasseh. And they claim to be the descendants of the tribe of Manasseh that was carried into captivity by the Assyrians 27 centuries ago. The article says this, throughout their exile, even after their one copy of the written Torah was lost, the Benai Manash continued to observe Jewish traditions, including Shabbat, keeping kosher, celebrating feasts, and remembering the exodus from Egypt. See, in their captivity, Manasseh repented. They turned back to the God of their fathers. And so God kept his covenant and preserved them for centuries and finally returned them to the land. Israel's chief rabbinate examined their claims and in 2005 officially recognized the Benai Manesh as being descendants of Israel and granted them the right to return to the land. So after a 27-century exile, the tribe of Manasseh is back. That's called the grace of God. Revelation 7, 6 tells us that in the last days, the tribe of Manasseh will be fully restored to God and numbered among those who serve Jesus, the Messiah. And so the flood was a picture of judgment, but it was also a picture of grace. And that same thing is true for the tribe of Manasseh. And so if Cheshvan is the month of the flood and also the tribe of the month of Manasseh, that means this is a month with a warning of judgment, but a promise of grace. It's a, it's a month to know that God really does judge sin, but he is full of grace for those who will return to him. And if you have drifted away from God, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, God wants you to know there is grace to return this month. 
Cheshvan is also a month of new beginnings. And God wants you to know that even if you've messed up badly, your future can still be restored. That's his covenant promise to you. He knows the plans that he has for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And that promise is waiting for you if you turn back to him. This is a month to return to God and experience his goodness. And in this year of covenant, God wants you to know that he will always keep his covenant with you. Lord, we thank you for this month. Lord, we thank you that even though sin gets judged, Lord, you're a God of infinite grace. You're a God of amazing grace. And that if we will turn to you, if we will seek you, Lord, you'll be there for us. You'll fulfill your covenant. You'll bring us into a new beginning. You'll build a house for our future, a vehicle to take us in to the destiny you've created for us. Lord, I bless each one here this month. Let the blessings of Cheshvan be with you throughout the month. In Jesus' name, amen.